You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. administration continues to prepare its response to Holiday Bear's romp through the solar wind supply chain. Congress is asking for details on what was compromised in the incident and why the Department of Homeland Security failed to detect the intrusion. The U.N. offers some recommendations on norms of conduct in cyberspace. Ben Yellen on a New Jersey Supreme Court ruling that phone passcodes are not protected by the Fifth Amendment. Our guest is Frank Kettenstock from Fox IT on the security of PDF files. Developments in ransomware, including exchange server exploitation, credible extortion, and attempts to enlist customers against victims. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. The AP's report that the Russian threat group behind the SolarWinds supply chain compromise gained access to email accounts of senior U.S. Homeland Security officials, including those of former acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, continues to draw attention. As the AP puts it, quote, The intelligence value of the hacking of then-acting Secretary Chad Wolf and his staff is not publicly known, but the symbolism is stark. Their accounts were accessed as part of what's known as the solar winds intrusion, and it throws into question how the U.S. government can protect individuals, companies, and institutions across the country if it can't protect itself. End quote. CNET has a particularly useful summary and timeline of the entire Holiday Bear incident. The Washington Post says it's confirmed that Secretary Wolf's emails and those of senior staffers were indeed accessed, but the Department of Homeland Security has declined to confirm either the compromise or the content of the emails the threat actor obtained. Members of both the U.S. Senate and House from both major parties have asked the administration for an explanation. The U.S. administration is believed to be entering the last stages of deliberation over a response to the Russian operation. Delay in appointing the National Cyber Director the Solarium Commission recommended and Congress authorized is seen, according to Politico, as hindering the execution of whatever response the administration ultimately decides upon. It ascribes the delay to wrangling over agency equities 
executive branch reluctance to introduce another Senate-approved position into the White House, and at some level, personal friction among present and prospective senior cyber officials. Microsoft expresses its approval in a blog post of the United Nations' evolution of proposed international norms for conduct in cyberspace. Redmond sees three particularly noteworthy aspects of the report by the General Assembly's open-ended working group. First, it elevates and affirms the authority of international law in cyberspace and the set of norms for responsible behavior that were adopted as voluntary standards in 2015. Second, it recognizes the need to protect healthcare from cyber attacks, including medical services and facilities. Third, it calls on states to protect the Information Communications Technology, or ICT, supply chain. As the open-ended working group's report has it, the development of international communications technology have become central to the UN's core goals of promoting peace and security, human rights, and sustainable development. The global connectivity such technology has fostered has become a catalyst for human progress and development, transforming societies and economies, and expanding opportunities for cooperation. The states who contributed to the working group expressed concern over the extent to which ICT has been, in effect, weaponized, and that such weaponization represents a significant threat. Quote, ICT activity contrary to obligations under international law that intentionally damages critical infrastructure or otherwise impairs the use and operation of critical infrastructure to provide services to the public could pose a threat not only to security but also to state sovereignty, as well as economic development and livelihoods, and ultimately the safety and well-being of individuals. End quote. The recommendations represent the application of familiar just war principles to cyberspace, particularly discrimination, proportionality, the protection of non-combatants, and the services essential to their well-being. The report recommended a mix of voluntary restraint and cooperation, further development of international law, and an effective array of confidence-building measures. Checkpoint adds its conclusions concerning a trend remarked by Security Week and others. Ransomware attacks are surging against still vulnerable instances of Microsoft Exchange Server. Checkpoint says, In the last week alone, the number of attacks involving Exchange Server vulnerabilities has tripled. Security Week's partial list of the criminal groups who've entered via the zero-day that Hafnium, a Chinese government actor, exposed, includes ransomware operators DeerCry, also known as DojoCrypt, and Black Kingdom, also known as Pydomer, with the Lemon Duck cryptojacking botnet in for good measure. Ransomware gangs are showing some evolutionary trends as well. Their long move from simply rendering victims' data inaccessible by encrypting it and on to adding data theft with the attendant possibility of either doxing or compromise of sensitive information is now well known. The BBC reports a shift toward more of what it calls extortionware, that is, the location of discreditable material, often pornographic, whose public disclosure would embarrass both the individual victim and the victim's organization. Sextortion has been going on for some time, but it's most often represented an empty threat. The extortionist typically had nothing on the victim and could be safely dealt with simply by ignoring it. In recent incidents, however, the criminals, unfortunately, may well have the goods. And the ransomware gangs are also calling in victims' customers to help induce the victims to pay up. 
Bleeping Computer wrote Friday that the Klopp gang has begun to threaten those customers with data exposure in the expectation that the customers will pressure the victims to pay. This was first seen, Bleeping Computer says, when Flagstar Bank was hit and then when the University of Colorado was affected by the Excellion incident. More recently, Bleeping Computer says it's seen an email sent to customers of an unnamed online maternity store. The publication won't on principle name the retailer urging them to push the store to pay the ransom. The email's subject line says, Your personal data has been stolen and will be published. The body goes on to say, Perhaps you bought something there and left your personal data, such as phone, email, address, credit card information, and social security number. It closes with creepy urgency. Call or write this store and ask to protect your privacy. There is, of course, no particular reason for anyone, customer or not, to assume that the Klopp gang will keep its word. Forbes points out that this tactic seems to make the victim out to be the bad guy. Their article also urges people not to fall for it and to avoid becoming complicit in the crime. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. The trusty PDF file format dates back to 1993, a portable document format developed by Adobe, standardized in 2008 and fairly ubiquitous today. It's one of those file formats that's been around so long and is in such common use that for a lot of folks, it's essentially benign. 
The thought that PDF files could carry security issues doesn't really cross their minds. Frank Kettenstock is CMO of Foxit Software, a provider of PDF tools, and he joins us with a few security reminders about the format. So we look at security for PDF, we look at it as three different ways. Uh, The first one is security of vulnerabilities. That's to protect you against malicious software. The second is document security. That's really to protect the confidential information within a document. And then the third one is service security, right? Because we do a lot of things uh, over the cloud now. And if you're dealing with a cloud service that goes outside your firewall, you want to make sure that your documents uh, are secure as well as your privacy is protected. And so we look at uh, those three separate things. Now, for security vulnerabilities, uh, this has been happening for, you know, since the Internet had started, right? We download software onto our computer, and sometimes there's unwanted software that comes with it, right? And a lot of times that's malicious software that we don't want. And so we install virus protection, right, to, to guard against that. Also, our browsers now also have... Uh, capabilities built into it uh, to warn us against uh, suspicious websites or other types of things. And so our PDF software that reads and displays and uh, allows you to manipulate or edit PDF documents really does the same thing as well. And so one of the great things about PDF is it's very powerful, uh, but it allows you to do things like JavaScripting and so forth. And that's where someone can put in some malicious software. So what we want to do is protect you and your computer against that, right? So we have something called a safe mode, uh, which will basically turn, like, a lot of things off. And so you're very secure with that, but sometimes your PDF might not operate correctly, right? So we have ways, things like whitelisting, to be able to provide you the capability to say, this is what I want to protect myself against, and this is what I don't. Uh, we also look at things when you try to, when a PDF tries to access areas of memory that it shouldn't be or does some external commands that's not very typical. We would stop those and say, hey, your PDF is trying to do this. Do you really want it to do that? So we're trying to protect the user when they download documents off the Internet to make sure that both their data as well as their system uh, doesn't get negatively affected. Hmm. So, uh, bright days still ahead for PDFs. I mean, it's a, it's a format that's been around for a while, but uh, still provides us with uh, the service we need for many, many uh, useful functions to come. So, yes, that's correct. And uh, what we see now is more and more people are using PDFs on cloud-based services, right? Whether it's cloud storage or PDF creators or editors uh, like ours, also augment uh, the desktop with cloud-based services or just have standalone cloud-based services. Now there's security in that as well, different type of security, right? So a lot of these cloud-based services, some of your information or data uh, might get moved to a cloud-based server outside of your firewall. And you want to ensure that your documents, your information, uh, as well as your personal information are secure and are private. You also want to make sure that um, 
the IT folks of your uh, cloud service provider or internally uh, that they are also have restrictions and so forth and so people within the company can't steal the data as well. And these are all kinds of things that you want to look at uh, for a PDF document or obviously even if it's a non-PDF document. That's Frank Kettenstock from Foxit Software. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, interesting article from CPO Magazine, uh, and it is titled, New Jersey Supreme Court Rules Phone Passcodes Are Not Protected by Fifth Amendment. What's going on here, Ben? So this is an issue we've talked about on this podcast and on the Caveat podcast, and there's really a large disagreement among courts in this country as to how to address it. So the Fifth Amendment says basically you can't be forced to testify against yourself. And that uh, we know is the right against self-incrimination. It's why mm. people say they're, they're pleading the Fifth. Um, they don't want to incriminate themselves. There are situations such as the case identified here where the government asks you to either decrypt your device or use your passcode to unlock your phone. And you, the user of that device, know that if you do that, there's going to be incriminating information, and you are going to get arrested. So the Hmm. question is whether the government can force you uh, to enter that passcode, whether they can compel you to do that, or whether that would violate somebody's Fifth Amendment rights. Other courts across the country, including the Supreme Court uh, of Indiana, I think in a case that we discussed, have said that this is a Fifth Amendment violation. This uh, does violate that right uh, against self-incrimination. The New Jersey Supreme Court, along with a lot of other courts, have come up with a different conclusion, basically saying that uh, because the discovery of the incriminating information is what they call a foregone conclusion, it is actually not protected by the Fifth Amendment. Hmm. So what do they mean by foregone conclusion? Well, in this case, they know that the individual knows his passcode, and they know that the individual is aware of what is on his device. So... In the view of the law, it is simply a matter of time before that device is going to be unlocked and accessible to government agents. To me, Hmm. this seems like a a legal fiction. I've always said that. I don't really uh, understand or see the value in the foregone conclusion doctrine. Hmm. Uh, But that's that's what courts have argued, that if you can prove that somebody knows their passcode, it's not incriminating in and of itself to simply enter a passcode. That's not something that's you know, in and of itself revealing information. What happens to be on the 
cellular device, you know, that's the incriminating information. It's not the passcode itself. Is this the same as like in the real world? Would they be, could they compel me to unlock my safe? So basically, there there are a couple things there. Basically, yes. Um, The Fifth Amendment only applies to testimonial evidence. So it's evidence that's spoken. It's not something like standing in a police lineup, for example, being forced to stand in a police lineup would not subject you to that Fifth Amendment protection. And Mm -hmm. in the majority of cases, you'd you'd have to look at the exact circumstances, but forcing somebody to unlock a safe deposit, if you are convinced that that person has the key, uh, that could be proven, or that they know the passcode to that safe deposit box, then the foregone conclusion doctrine would still apply. Hmm. So it is something where we do have, uh, you know, relative agreement between the analog and the digital world. There are a couple of interesting unanswered questions here. You know, what do you do if you're if the law enforcement are are not sure who owns a particular device and could, you know, you perhaps be getting incriminating information on somebody's uh, somebody else because, you know, your friend was borrowing your phone or something like that. Hmm. Uh, so there's that question. Um, what if somebody has a burner phone uh, and, you know, it's not connected to their real name? Um, they, you know, could make a plausible claim that doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to somebody else. I think those questions remain unanswered by the logic in this case. Um, and I think because we've seen disagreement among state courts on this, this is something I think eventually is going to make it up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Hmm. Um, federal courts have have. Uh, had their own disagreements on compelled decryption and uh, entering passcodes in the context of the Fifth Amendment. And I think eventually the Supreme Court is going to have to uh, resolve these disagreements. Any speculation for how that might go? Oh, it is a fool's errand to try and speculate on Supreme Court (laughs) jurisprudence, especially in areas that aren't, you know, neatly politicized like this Uh one. Yeah. Um, But, you know, there are a couple of justices uh, across ideologies who have recognized a person's privacy interests, enhanced privacy interests in a cell phone. So this case invokes Riley v. California, a 2014 uh, case where the Supreme Court says the government needs a warrant to access your cell phone. So that, you know, this state Supreme Court ruling would seem to kind of go against the spirit of Riley, although here... You know, this is simply about putting entering in one's passcode. It's not actually gaining access to to the device. But hmm. you know, I think perhaps Riley gives us an indication of how serious the Supreme Court takes uh, digital devices and smartphones, uh, and that those devices, because of the amount of information contained therein, um, perhaps merit advanced privacy protections uh, hmm. in the Constitution. All right. Well, time will tell. We'll see how this uh, continues to play out. It's interesting how it, uh, the, how how different it is depending on what part of the the country you're in. Like we've seen so many different ru- rulings on this. Yeah, it's really an unanswered question, and I hope we get some resolution in the near future. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Batteries not included. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.